Arga is driving growth in the agricultural sector by adding carbon dioxide to increase production capacity and guarantee large, attractive flowers and vegetables such as cucumbers, tomatoes and lettuce. Using carbon dioxide fertilization increases yield by up to 30%. Ambient air has a carbon dioxide concentration of 400 ppm. This is sufficient for growing tomatoes and cucumbers, but as the plants, often grown in greenhouses, start to consume the carbon dioxide in the air at first sunlight, if the concentration of carbon dioxide is allowed to fall, growth is slowed down or halted. CO2 in greenhouses is very important because we get a better crop, a higher yield and better quality of the tomatoes. Additional carbon dioxide needs to be added to increase efficiency and to have the optimal yield. By keeping the carbon dioxide concentration in the greenhouse atmosphere in a range of 600 to 1000 ppm, the best growth rate can be expected. When extra carbon dioxide is added to greenhouse air, the tomato, cucumber and lettuce yield improves by up to 30% or even more. Cut flowers and potted plants also benefit from carbon dioxide fertilization. Carbon dioxide not only increases yield but also produces an earlier harvest and improves plants' resistance to disease and pests. to another midweek edition of Down the Rabbit Hole. I am Big D. It's good to have everybody along. Hope your week is going well. I want to remind you, you can reach out to us at downtherh at protonmail.com, downtherh at protonmail.com. Got a lot to talk about this week. We're going to take a little trip down a rabbit hole and make some connections. One of the things that I think is important and it's a, it's a great exercise, and I think it opens your eyes to a lot of things that are going on because we hear news stories and you get news clips. You see things that are happening, and they're usually an individual story. So you hear about this going on over there, and you hear about something else going on over there. They seem to kind of connect, kind of on the same thread, but, of course, the media is not going to tell you that they actually are indeed all connected. You have to do that digging for yourself. So we're going to do a little bit of connection today, connection making, and then we're going to go into some news stories, current, that I think continue the narrative of what we're going to talk about today. I'm calling this episode The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and that's for a reason, because where we're going to start with today's story and today's exercise actually happened in the year 2009. And I know a lot of you, it seems a long time ago, but what came out of this meeting, and once we follow the pattern, I think you're going to see it has wrought immense pain, havoc, and trouble on the world under the guise of philanthropy. So what happened in 2009? 
Well, there was a top secret meeting by the world's richest people. It was held in New York on May 5th. It was a group of billionaires, and they called themselves the Good Club. That was the moniker that they gave themselves. So who was at this meeting? Well, let's start with who called the meeting. So Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and David Rockefeller Jr., they're the ones who decided they needed to gather billionaires who were like-minded together for the good of humanity, for the good of the planet, and for the good of their agenda. They want to help. So they invited Oprah Winfrey, George Soros, Ted Turner, Michael Bloomberg, and others, and they all were at this meeting in the president's room at Rockefeller University in New York at 3 p.m. on that Tuesday afternoon in New York. So what were they all doing? What was going on in there? Well, there was a media blackout. This was supposed to be super secret. No one was supposed to know. This was just supposed to stay inside. And they were to each give a 15-minute speech about what they saw was wrong with the world, what needed urgent new plans for the future. They wanted to hear a broad range of views in the financial and philanthropic fields. They wanted to talk about global economics, climate, the future priorities for philanthropy, and what they felt this elite group should do. The Irish Times, the Irish Central newsletter, actually got tipped off on this by somebody who received one of the invitations. And so they tried to do some digging and tried to get into the meeting, and obviously they were unsuccessful. But they did get a list of attendees from one of the people who was working on the inside. One of the things that they were worried about is that they were worried that the billionaires of today were not taking the message that they were given seriously, not seriously enough. They were joined in the belief by Charles Feeney that the, quote, secret billionaire who first coined the term giving while living, and he was the one who taught them all how to put all their things in trust funds and funds and don't, quote, donate it. And it was because of this meeting that the term philanthropic capitalism became a new word. Here's one of the things that came out of it. It says, today's philanthropists see a world full of big problems that they, and perhaps only they, can and must put right. Their philanthropy is strategic, market-conscious, impact-oriented, knowledge-based, often high engagement, and always driven by the goals of maximizing the, quote, leverage of the donor's money. Philanthropic capitalists are increasingly trying to find ways of harnessing the profit motive to achieve social good. One of the things that they were worried about is overpopulation, infectious diseases, the discontent of the developing world. And according to this article, the billionaires in attendance committed to massive spending in areas of interest to themselves, heedless of the priorities of national governments and existing aid organizations. So apparently they have met several times since then, although that I don't know. We do know for a fact that they met that day in 2009 in New York. They call themselves the Good Club. I don't see why they haven't gotten together 
again, it would only make sense. But what I want to do is since 2009, let's take a look at some of the things that all of these groups have done that they have in common. We all know that Soros has his own thing going. We know that Bloomberg funds his own thing. Gates funds his own thing. But as a unit, where are they putting their money the most? And what is it that they are funding and trying to, as they say, change? Well, one of the main things that they're doing that they, that they really logged into was cornering the world food market. And one of the companies that they were using for that was Monsanto. If you don't know about Monsanto, I think Brandon and I will do an entire show on Monsanto at some point. But just in a nutshell, Monsanto was the maker of Agent Orange during Vietnam. They invented Roundup that had all kinds of problems. They invented aspartame and they lied over and over again. They've invented these GMO genetically modified seeds and food and cornered the market by buying up all of the seed companies around the United States and, and essentially around the world to force these GMO seeds on everybody. Pretty much everything you eat from a fast food is from this stuff. They genetically modified soybeans, alfalfa, sugar beets, wheat, on and on. They were given the moniker of Frankenseeds or Frankencrops. They've been sued many, many, many times. They were eventually bought out by Bayer, who has no great history themselves. They're the ones who invented all the gas and came up with the blueprint in World War II for the Nazis, and you know what they did with that. And Monsanto has been voted over and over and over as the most evil company in the world. Now, they no longer exist technically by name, but they're under the Bayer banner. They're still operating. Like I said, we'll go into that as an entire show sometime. Brandon and I will do that because Monsanto is truly, truly an evil company, and they have been for a long time. But who's funding them? Where are they getting all their money? Well, primarily from the, quote, philanthropic Gates, Soros, Rockefeller, and all these foundations, these trust funds, and these endowments, and big investments in food and agribusiness companies. We've talked about how Gates is buying up farmland. We've talked about, well, I don't know if we've talked about it, but they've essentially destroyed farming in India and Africa and created all kinds of political parties over there that they have pushed to change laws and force upon those people heinous, heinous farming practices. Indian farmers committing suicide left and right because they're destroying their businesses and, and their generational farms. Same thing in Africa. And Gates specifically, because he's, he's not afraid to attach his name to it, although if you dig down into the donors list, Everybody I mentioned from the Good Club basically is pouring money into these ventures. And if you just look at a graph, this is by growing culture, Gates is consolidating control over our food system. A, data looting, collecting massive amounts of data from farmers in order to control input supply and demand. Synthetic food, pushing for synthetic meat and profiting from it under the guise of fighting, quote, climate change. 
agribusiness investment, profiting from direct investments in many agribusinesses around the world, agribusiness research, pushing corporate ag research agendas through grant making. So what they do is go into colleges, goes into ag businesses, pays for them to put together pieces and studies that are all beneficial to his agenda, to their agenda. He's fighting for intellectual property rights, facilitating tighter corporate controls of seeds, lobbying, pressuring governments to introduce laws to privatize seeds and other policies that favor industrial agriculture and land grabbing. We've talked about that, acquiring massive tracts of land. Gates is now the largest farm owner in the U.S., According to this paper called The Unholy Alliance, this is out of the Oakland Institute, five Western donors shape a pro-corporate agenda for African agriculture. And I know a lot of you say, well, it's in Africa. It doesn't really affect me. Africa, India, and some of these Central American countries who are basically run and have been overrun by Gates, Soros, Rockefeller, these are all testing grounds. They know that they have corrupt governments. They pay them off. They come in there and they do whatever they want and they try all their stuff out down there. It's a guinea pig system. According to this, it says, in recent years, prominent international donors initiatives have focused on supporting industrial agriculture and large agribusiness companies at the expense of family farmers. The World Bank, which is run by the Rockefellers, quote, enabling the business of agriculture, shortened to EBA, is one of these initiatives. The EBA is a benchmarking tool created in 2013 to foster policies that facilitate doing business in agriculture and increase the investment attractiveness and competitiveness of countries. But it's actually done nothing of the sort. It's destroyed them. It's ruined them. As you go through this article, and I'll put this in the show notes, it shows how they cornered the market on seeds, fertilizer, machinery, finance, markets, and transport so that you could do no business with anybody else but them. And this was coming not only from them, but from the World Bank. And they were trying this as well in other countries, such as France, the Netherlands, and so forth. So an example of the EBA donor-funded mechanisms for agribusiness financing. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but it, these will sound familiar. The Danish Agribusiness Fund. And that we've seen what's going on over there. They're trying to run all the farmers off their land. They're trying to get them to kill cows and so forth. FMO, the Dutch Entrepreneurial Development Bank, partnering for innovation. And this is the U.S. and the U.K. And Agritech Catalyst. And that was launched in 2014. All these are launched in 14, 17, 11, 2016. And the report was released in 2009. Any coincidence there? Uh, you can decide for yourself. And so if you look at also the developing partners, it's the, Internet, it's the IMF, International Finance Corporation, it's USAID from American People, Embassy of Ireland, it's NORAD, NORFUND, Norwegian Industry, and these are all shield co corporations for this unholy alliance of all of these groups. This is a very interesting article. If you look at what they have given, Here's how much money they've given out. For the African seed system, $168 million from the BMGF. The USAID is $52.2 million, and the Netherlands gave $11.5 million. 
for Soil Health Program, BMFG, that's Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, $164.5 million. The Seed Trade Association for Africa, estimated $4 million. And it goes on. It just goes on and on and on. And if you look at the history of Monsanto, Monsanto, at one point, there were hundreds of thousands of people hitting the street who were who caught on to what they were doing and they started protesting them because they were essentially killing people and causing all kind of birth defects. A lot of people worried about where the bees went. Well, they engineered these crops that self-pollinated and they didn't need bees. And so what happens? Well, the bees start dying because they have nothing to spread around. In fact, if you look at the graph of bee colony collapse, it started once these GM crops were first introduced. And it just go, continues down, down, down because it, it's killing them. And we, need, we obviously, we need the bees. So that is one thing that they went into. And they're continuing to this day. You can see what they're doing in this avenue. The other thing they went into, of course, was the climate change. They really started ramping up climate change. How are we going to fight climate change? How are we going to scare everybody with climate change? How do we use climate change to get to our agenda? And part of that is, of course, electric cars and all the usual suspects. But one of the things I find interesting is that they zeroed in, they doubled down on CO2, the carbon emissions, obviously. Everybody's worried about carbon emissions. We hear that from everybody. It's killing us, killing the planet, killing everything. If that's the truth, why then in these big Frankenhouse farms that they're building. It's basically warehouses where they're genetically modifying and genetically producing food and beef and meat and all this stuff. They're running these huge pipelines and they're trying to put a new one in right now and wipe out through eminent domain and through the state taking away land from farmers and ranchers up in South Dakota and through parts of the North Midwest of America, they're running these huge pipelines. And what are they running through those pipelines? Well, it's CO2. It is carbon. And so Bill Gates, along with Bloomberg and the rest of the crew, they're now investing in carbon removal. Remember, we were told that carbon's bad, that carbon is killing everybody, and you got to plant a tree, you have to watch your carbon emissions and so forth. Well, I played this clip coming in. I want you to listen to this is from them. And this is talking about their warehouse where this carbon is being put in. So listen again to this. Arga is driving growth in the agricultural sector by adding carbon dioxide to increase production capacity and guarantee large, attractive flowers and vegetables such as cucumbers, tomatoes and lettuce. Using carbon dioxide fertilization increases yield by up to 30%. Ambient air has a carbon dioxide concentration of 400 ppm. This is sufficient for growing tomatoes and cucumbers, but as the plants, often grown in greenhouses, start to consume the carbon dioxide in the air at first sunlight, if the concentration of carbon dioxide is allowed to fall, growth is slowed down or halted. CO2 in greenhouses is very important because we get a better crop, a higher yield and better quality of the tomatoes. 
Additional carbon dioxide needs to be added to increase efficiency and to have the optimal yield. By keeping the carbon dioxide concentration in the greenhouse atmosphere in a range of 600 to 1000 ppm, the best growth rate can be expected. When extra carbon dioxide is added to greenhouse air, the tomato, cucumber and lettuce yield improves by up to 30% or even more. Cut flowers and potted plants also benefit from carbon dioxide fertilization. Carbon dioxide not only increases yield but also produces an earlier harvest and improves plants resistance to disease and pests. All right, so what is the PPM level that scientists, I'm putting that in air quotes, scientists tell us is so dangerous that we'll all starve, that we'll all die, that it's going to burn up the planet and it will be impossible to live here. Does anybody have a guess? It's 350 ppm. Yet according to their own propaganda piece there about how great their warehouses are growing all of these frankenfoods, the CO2 level, the ideal CO2 level for growing food is 400 ppm and 600 to 1,000 ppm is used in their greenhouses to increase yield by over 30% and reduce pest and disease. Any of that makes sense? Do those two numbers match? If it's out in the open where you breathe, <sighs> where cows fart, where CO2 is everywhere, we're told that 350 ppm is the danger level. Like well, That's it. Everything's going to melt. We're all going to drown. You know the drill. But according to them in their own greenhouse, 400 and or 600 to 1,000 is optimal. So... Does that make any sense as to why they want to capture this carbon? They need to increase the carbon. That's why they're trying to get rid of the cows. That's why they're trying to get rid of the trees. Oh, wait, did I say the trees? Yes. Listen to this. Scottish Tory MSP Liam Keir admits to 16 million trees being cut down on publicly owned land in Scotland and this is July 19, 2023. This is just recent. 16 million trees to develop wind farms. We all know what happened in Canada. We talked about the wildfires in Canada that all seem to suspiciously start at the same time. We know that they're not managing the forests in the Northwest, in Canada, and around the world so that when summer comes, lightning strikes, somebody throws a match out the window or whatever, it goes up. And, we, and then, oh, it's climate change. And I talked about at the time. It seems suspicious that they're so worried about carbon. And trees are the number one catchers of carbon. They're the filter that they're trying to get rid of all these trees. I thought we were worried about the trees. Even this Scottish Tory, Liam Keir, talks about how for years and years and years, people were doing, quote, good by planting a tree, or if you bought this product, they would plant a tree for you. Well, these were all those trees. These were all these trees. And they cut down 16 million without telling their citizens. So as you are being coerced and guilted into, quote, saving the planet by planting a tree, 
they're actually literally cutting them down. They could care less. Who's this wind farm and everything backed by? Same group. Same names on there. Any of this starting to make sense? In fact, if I Google it up, planting trees for climate change, there's page after page. The tree planting charity, fight against climate change, six ways trees benefit the people. Trees help fight climate change. Planting for our climate. There's all kind of groups. There's all kind of programs to plant trees. One tree planted, climate trees. Plant a billion trees. U.S. is planting billions of trees to fight climate change. And it goes on and on and on. But in actuality, in reality, they don't care. They will cut them down in a heartbeat for philanthropic and moving forward into what they view as the future. And this is all pre-planned. They, all, they get together. They talk about this stuff. They have the money. They go in and corner the market. They buy up the politicians. And they convince you of something that is bad. So everybody, oh, yes, that's horrible. They pay off the, the media. They pay everybody off. They get everybody going in one direction. While at the same time, they're scooping up behind. While everybody's abandoning all these things, they're buying it all up because that is the plan. According to this article, and this is in Bloomberg, the Icelandic startup Bill Gates uses to turn carbon dioxide into stone. Preventing emissions from smokestacks can be done for as little as $25 a ton, while pulling them directly from the air can cost $600 a ton. And it's all about this startup in Iceland. They are turning carbon dioxide into rocks, allowing the greenhouse gas to be stored forever instead of escaping into the atmosphere and trapping heat. So we're, we're going to just put it into a bunch of rocks and then we're going to store it in the ground. The other thing that they're really, really working hard on is, of course, these electric cars. And I know Elon Musk is involved in that. And again, if you want an electric car, fine. I think it should be a free market. And if that's the way you want to go, that's great. But this idea that it is environmentally good and that it is saving the planet and so forth, it's a scam. In fact, inside the industry who's promoting this, they can't even come to a consensus as to how long it takes for one of these electric vehicles to reach what they call zero emissions, which means zero emission means from the time that they raid the earth, get the chemicals, get all the materials that they need to build this wonder car that's going to save the planet, how long do you have to drive it before it becomes zero emission or break the break-even point? How long does it take before it offsets the carbon emissions generated for building it? Well, on the low, low end is 15 to 20,000 miles. And in reality, it's as high as 100,000 miles. One guy says, this is UK-based Times headline, electric cars are only greener than petrol after 50,000 miles, or about 78,000 kilometers. According to a report from 2022, the Union of Concerned Scientists estimated that zero emissions breakpoint is between 42,000 and 94,000 miles. And I, there's all kinds of figures on here. There's 12,000 miles, 50,000 miles, 100,000 miles, it goes on and on and on. And these are from the insiders who are trying to make the push of this. So you go to the other side, the people who are against these, they've even gone higher than that. Like I say, it generally starts at 100,000. But the, the reality is, is that 
just because you buy this electric car and you're using electric to use it and it's not emitting anything, what it took from the earth to gather all these materials to put this thing together and make the batteries and everything, you have to drive it for a long time before it, quote, breaks even, which is about the average length of most cars, 100,000 miles. That's when most people are saying, hey, it might be time to trade this in. Uh, let's go get a new one and so forth. So it's really not doing anything. And in the meantime, I don't know if you've ever, and we may have to go down this one day, what it takes and what's happening to these countries that they're going in and getting all these minerals and materials to make these cars. It's really, really crazy. Uh, another thing that they are all highly invested in, of course, is World Health Organization and the UN. And we obviously saw this in COVID. That's not even debatable. Bill Gates and Michael Bloomberg, Rockefeller, Soros give hundreds of thousands and millions of maybe even a billion dollars to keep that thing afloat, both of them, the UN and the World Health Organization. And of course, we saw the unified response to COVID, which was beneficial to them because they had the patents and they had all the money invested in the vaccines. They need to get it out. They were the only ones who made money during the lockdowns. We've gone through all of that. So what's happening now? Bill Gates has talked about this. The Rockefellers have talked about this. Bloomberg has talked about this. All these characters have all talked about this idea, of course, of the one world government. And they call it the unified world. But we know exactly what it is. So in September 2024, the United Nations is going to hold a landmark, quote, summit of the future, where member nations will adopt a pact for the future. And this agreement will solidify numerous policy reforms offered by the UN over the past two years as part of its sweeping, quote, our common agenda platform. All of this has been parroted and puppeted by the elites for years now, and now they finally have it into writing. World Health Organization has something very similar, and basically here's what it is. The UN has a plan for a new, quote, emergency platform. It's a proposal to give the United Nations and the World Health Organization significant powers in the event of future, quote, global shocks, such as another worldwide pandemic. They want to strengthen the international response to complex global shocks, calling it an emergency platform. Well, what's a global shock? It could be anything, according to these guys. It could literally be anything, and it could be anywhere in the world. According to them, the UN would bring together the, quote, stakeholders of the world. Who would they be? Who are the stakeholders of the world? Were they voted in? Did we all give them approval to be, quote, stakeholders of the world? According to them, these include academics, governments, private sector actors, and international financial institutions to ensure that there is a unified global response to the crisis. It would also give the United Nations the power to, quote, ensure that all participating actors make commitments that can contribute meaningfully to the response and that they are held to account for delivery on these commitments. In other words, 
The United Nations World Health Organization could declare an emergency or a shock or whatever they decide, whether it could be famine, it could be a, another pandemic, it could be climate change, it could be anything. If they declare it so, it would give unprecedented authority by their stakeholders over the public and private sectors of the world, the entire world. And it gets worse. Now, we haven't gotten to this because this is in 2024, and you need to wake up right now because this is coming. If the nations sign on to this, it is pretty much game over. Although the duration of the emerging platform would be initially set for a, quote, finite period, at the, quote, end of that period, the Secretary General could extend the work of an emergency platform if required, meaning it could go on forever. The UN provides several possible examples in its formal proposal about what a global shock is, meaning it could be a major climactic event, future pandemic risks, global digital connectivity disruption. We don't even have that yet. And we're going to talk about that next. But they're already talking about if we're all connected digitally and there's a disruption, that's a major event. They also include, quote, a major event in outer space. And here's the one that you really need to hold on to, quote, unforeseen risk. When I say they could call anything a shock, a global shock, under that category, unforeseen risk, it could literally be anything. It makes it absolutely clear in this proposal that this would allow the United Nations and the World Health Organization their role to be maximized in the face of crisis with global reach, and they basically have full sway, full power. Like I said, this is going to take place in September 2024 here in the United States. Joe Biden is on board, just so you know. And the what, people who are funding this are the usual suspects. People who are funding the UN, people who are whispering in their ear, people who are giving them money, people who are paying off the politicians. It can all be traced back to this good club, which by proxy would be also the Bilderbergs. It could also be the Illuminati, it could be whatever you want it to be. These are these global elites who get together, have these little powwows, and decide how they're going to run the world for you and me, the little, little people. As I said, another thing they're working on really hard is the connectivity of the world. And we see this. We've heard them talk about it. I could go through article after article of Bill Gates talking about it. The Rockefeller, David Rockefeller, who's not here anymore, but he talked about it. He's very famous for saying, yeah, I want a one-world uh, system. I'm, I'm guilty of that. That's exactly what we're striving for. It's in his book. Bloomberg has talked about it. We all know Soros is all in on it. And they, they each have their own vision of where they want it to go. However, they're all unified on the fact that they want it to get there. So we have this coming our way right now. The CEO of WorldCoin says, quote, something like the world ID will eventually exist whether you like it or not. The OpenAI CEO, Sam Altman, has developed this thing called WorldCoin. He says everyone who wants to use the internet will eventually 
be required to use World ID or something like it. And right now he has this thing called a World Coins Orb Iris Scanner. Currently there's 150,000 participants in total, 20,000 each day are signing up. In Barcelona, there are resurrecting a number of these orb scanners. And according to him, Portugal is not far behind, and then Germany. All in all, some 2 million biometric credentials are now operated by WorldCoin. So you have to wonder, why? Why would people sign up for this? Why, why are people so eager to do this? And according to Alex Blania, he says something like the World ID will eventually exist, meaning that you will need to verify that you are human on the internet, whether you like it or not. And according to Blania, digital ID will be so prevalent that it will become inevitable. There will be no escaping, verifying the quality of being human. And if you want online at all, you're going to have to use one of these orb scanners or something like it. He doesn't say this is it, but this is step one. In fact, he says it's happening within a couple of years. So if you thought CAPTCHA was bad, wait till this comes and you're going to have to Look into a screen. You're going to have to verify that you're a human, verify that you're actually a person in order to just get on the Internet. I also thought this was interesting because, as we know, a lot of our usual suspects, they're big fans of China. They think China's great. We've heard Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum. We've heard Bill Gates all through the pandemic say that China got it right. China's amazing. China does business well. They like the way they control their people. China is the model for this one world system, this global system. They're looking at China and saying, we need that on a global scale. So if you're cool with what's going on in China, social credit scores, everything's on your phone, you can be locked out, you have to be a good citizen, they're watching you everywhere you go and you can be fined for any movement, anything you step out of bounds, if you're okay with that, then you're going to be okay in the new world because that is what they're looking at. If you're all for personal freedom and personal movement, not having the government know every single thought you have, everything you buy, everywhere you go, everything that you attend, well, that is what they want to happen. And according to this article, it says you're probably aware, of course, China is trying to establish themselves as a global leader and trying to also corner the market on a lot of things. According to this article, China has been literally draining the world's food supply, devastating the ocean, and setting up other nations to starve down the road. They have these things that are called floating cities. So China has developed these huge barges, multiple barges put together, and they're, they call them floating cities. And they go around in international waters. They park off the coast of nations that rely on fishing as a, one of their primary industries. And they grab up all the fish and destroy the entire ecosystem. People know what's going on. Nations are worried about it. But there are these loopholes that China is allowed to continue. I'm looking at a satellite photo right now. It's of this floating city off the Argentinian coast. It's huge. It's massive. This ship apparently stays anchored there for years at a time, sending their produce to China using a mothership. 
They don't pay any taxes. They don't buy any supplies or fuel from the country that they're sitting off of because they're just on the border, just on the edge of international waters. They don't interact or they don't occupy all the fishing spots, but they go from one spot till the fish are extinct and then they move on to the next one. According to this article, the South Atlantic will be empty in a few years at this rate. It's not, quote, our fish because it's beyond the 200 mile according to the Argentinian government. But it's where our fishermen go to try to make a living, and it's getting harder every year. According to another report, China's already done irreversible damage to oceanic ecology. South Pacific is currently in a death spiral of missing links in the food chain and will lose 80% of its biodiversity in the next five years. But wait, I thought this was climate change doing all this. According to the Atlantic, it's recording 25 to 100 extinct species per year. Alaskan crab populations are gone. We have maybe two to three more years of fishing those before they are gone forever. Now they are using disguised boats in the North Atlantic to dredge fish, lobsters, instead of live trapping, meaning no breeder or egg-carrying lobsters are saved. They just scoop them all up. Chinese take them all. In two years, China has undone 100 years of lobster fishing stewardship. According to another report, the Chinese government operates the fishing fleets with the sole purpose of destroying other nations' ability to feed itself, forcing them to buy from China. China got fishing rights to the Persian Gulf from Iran as part of a trade deal, and China sent 500 ships to trawl their coast for a year, doing nothing but using electrified dragnets to kill everything on the ocean floor. The entire Iranian fishing industry shrunk by 78% in 12 months because everything's dead. And it goes on. Do you hear the concern coming out of Bill Gates about this? you hear any concern from the World Economic Forum about this? you hear anything from Bloomberg, Rockefeller Foundation, Soros? It's deafening the silence, isn't it? It's non-existent. Yet they point to all these things that are happening that are man-made, that are being caused by governments, being caused by their philanthropy as something we're doing. We're the culprits. It's because of your straw. It's because you have a plastic straw. It's because you are driving a gas-powered car. It's because of you. You're killing the planet. When in the meantime, we have a government cutting down millions of trees. We have China out there raiding the ocean. We have Bill Gates and all of his cronies destroying farms and food everywhere, telling us the CO2 is bad. At the same time, pumping it into their greenhouse, sucking it out of there, turning it into rocks so that they can create these GMO foods, fake foods, lab-grown meat, fake vegetables, fake everything. And I didn't even get into the minutia of how sick these things make you. You think they're eating this? Do you think they're partaking in what they're supposedly helping the world with? No. The last World Economic Forum, they're all eating Wagyu beef and lobsters and all the finities of life, all of it. I'm just scratching the surface here. But I wanted to show you this linear progression we go right back to this good club. You wonder why Oprah Winfrey was there. I, w I wondered the same thing. 
Well, apparently from all accounts, especially at this one, it's because she's heavy into the entertainment field and she has a lot of sway in Hollywood. And so in order to get the message out, she holds the key to putting this message out there, convincing everybody that what they're seeing is not what they're seeing, convincing everybody that what these philanthropists are doing is great. And she's a nice, lovely face on top of the crap pile. Don't look below. Look up here. I'm very friendly. I give stuff away. Everybody loves me. And I have this monopoly going in the entertainment industry. And I hold a lot of sway. And apparently from everything I read, she was there in a, quote, listening capacity. She did not give a speech. She was there to be instructed, as we say. According to the article that I'm reading and several others that have confirmed this, at the time that this group was meeting, Bill Gates was worth an estimated $57 billion, with a B. Buffett was worth an estimated $37 billion. Oprah Winfrey, of course, is a billionaire. Ted Turner, who was alive at the time, he was the founder of CNN. He was obviously a billionaire as well, estimated at somewhere between 9 and $10 billion. Soros at the time, estimated at $11 billion while Bloomberg at the time was listed at the, as the eighth richest American with a net worth of $20 billion. And according to all estimates that I've found, if you combine the income and the net worth of all these people who were together in this room, it is astounding how much power, sway, and money they have to throw around. I think the only, thing, the only people who were slightly richer, to, richer than them, obviously not Bill Gates, were some of the oil sheiks. And they, they could care less. They're on their own island. But they'll, they'll come around on some point. They'll put the squeeze on them. That's what they're doing now. They're trying to bring them around to this way of thinking because, of course, oil bad. Can't have oil. And what are they going to do? They're going to lose all their business? No, they'll come around on some point. They'll just continue to put the squeeze on them. So I want you to think about this. I want you to think about how these things work, how these people operate, how they get together and conspire, and then follow the trail, see what they do. What was the result of that meeting? Well, we walked through just a very small, narrow path of what I look at as like an octopus. They have tentacles everywhere, and they're doing all kind of things. I just picked three or four random trails to go down just to see where their money went, and that's where it led me. They've gone into education into universities, they're paying off nations. I mean, it, just, it goes on and on and on because their worldview, you don't fit in it. We didn't even get into the population decline mode of them. I've talked about that on other podcasts. So this is what I talk about when I say follow connections, when you go down rabbit holes, when you follow the trail. Sometimes it leads you into dark, dark places and it's a real eye opener. But at the same time, if you keep your eyes closed to it, it will swallow you up and you won't even know what hit you until it's too late. So these are all things that are happening. These are all things that are coming. And the truth needs to get out there because our world is careening into 
their vision and we're going to be put in a place that suits them. So don't be fooled by all this propaganda that you're a bad person, you're a bad citizen if you do this, if you do that, if you do the other thing. And we've talked about recycling. I just saw another article today about how recycling is a massive, massive failure. But nobody's really talking about that because they still want you to feel guilty and they want you to come to their side as many philanthropists, you're doing a good thing. It's for the better of everybody. It's for the better of mankind. It's for the, the betterment of your country and your block and your friends and everybody. When in reality, it's for the betterment of them. And that's all they care about. And in the end, they don't give a damn about you or I. And they will just brush us aside and carry on because they truly believe and they truly see themselves as the gods of this earth the saviors of this earth so hope you enjoyed that little trip down the rabbit hole with me i can back all this up i can send you the articles if you'd like give me an email down the rh at protonmail.com and thank you to all the people who have sent got a lot of emails this week everybody seems to be maybe getting back into the swing of things so it's always great to hear from everybody I appreciate the show topic suggestions. We'll put those on the list. We will get to them at some point. And it's always fun interacting with you. So down the RH at protonmail.com. Hope you guys have a great rest of the week. Keep your eyes open. Stay alert and stay safe. I'm Big D and I'm out of here. That if we are to be successful, uh, CBDCs could not be fragmented national propositions. To have transactions more efficient and fairer, we need systems that connect countries. In other words, we need interoperability. Uh, and for this reason, at the IMF, we are working uh, hard on the concept of a global CBDC platform.